Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall look at why AI needs to be regulated by governments, even though politicians don't understand computers, just as the government regulates the manufacture and operation of aircraft, even though your average politician doesn't know their ass from an aileron. Sources today include In Focus, Your Undivided Attention, Democracy Now!, DW News, Today Explained, and a TED Talk with additional members-only clips from the Tom Hartman program and In Focus. So to start with, I was wondering if you can give us uh, a brief idea of what are the real concerns about AI that are animating, that are driving the legislative efforts of governments around the world? What are the core concerns? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's actually a very interesting debate. And uh, as somebody who has been following the debate uh, far before it became very publicly uh, kind of heated alongside JetGPT and some of the new models, is that there has been a very kind of a mesh of different topics and themes that have been involved in uh, or under underpinning lying. Some of the debates around how to best regulate and legislate artificial intelligence. So uh, I think a good way to start looking at this is that we start off with a kind of a negation or try to articulate or think about what potentially or what has been the kind of one of the one of the drivers of the debate that might not be the key thing to discuss in this uh, podcast podcast or in this conversation so there is a very popular kind of public conversation that has been going on around uh, the image of machines terminators artificial intelligence as these machines take on the world so there has been a very powerful debate around the kind of existential risk of ai which has been driving some of the debates. And um, once we start going into regulatory aspects of it, we can start seeing that there are various diverse interests that are actually underpinning the contemporary debates that are going on. So part of this kind of what we call a existential AI narrative, there has been a lot of work that has been done around what happens if AI becomes super, super intelligence and takes over and becomes uh, this massive force that by the pure force of its intelligence drives humans into extinction, so into kind of a subservient position or what, what have you. But so there has been a counter narrative that has been emerging in many, many kind of different respects to this uh, popular culture or this kind of narrative of AI as an existential threat is that one of the things that is often being hidden from the fact when we think about these very large questions around artificial intelligence is that what do these systems actually do and how are they being concretely implemented in different aspects of society? So there's a couple of versions of this, this kind of more critical narrative that has been advanced more in the attempts of trying to regulate different AI developments and companies. So one of them is that, and you can see, we can, we can start sketching out some of these debates as they're taking place on the public conversations and starting taking place also in the kind of online conversations that are going on. But the core idea behind that is that when we move away from this grand narrative of somehow AI becoming super intelligence and being able to kind of pose a certain existential threat to uh, to humanity or or to the, the ones who develop it. There has been various pressures of what are the actual concerns 
that now the systems are becoming very advanced, developed, and the, the progress of development is going at a very fast rate. So there's been pressure from society, societal pressure from civil society activism to think about how can we, what aspects of AI should be regulated in terms of questions around bias in the systems. Questions around privacy have been a very big issue around things like facial recognition technology and their practical uses. Increasingly, there has been talk about what happens with especially generative AI of the types of fake or artificial or synthetic content that can be generated. There's also been one big debate that has been also underlying some of these things, themes is that what, what becomes or what are the consequences of the use of automated AI systems and especially security and especially in um, kind of weapons and um, autonomous weapons. And there's been a big debate around what happens when AI becomes embedded into weapon systems and what are the limits and what kind of rules and regulations should we have them. And as we have been seeing in Ukraine and Gaza, this is already a concern that many of the systems are in one form or another. Using using uh, different AI models to, to drive or kind of augment the systems that are being used. So again, many of these kind of different interests have been meshing for a couple of years, and now they're starting to concretely find form or kind of manifest in various regulations that are being proposed. And I think in that context, uh, there's been uh, two of the key kind of legislative things that have been done. There was the, there was the EU AI Act that you mentioned, which was in 2021, where some of these principles were starting to be sketched, sketched out into something practical of what would it mean in practice, and then the Biden executive order. And in a way, the EU AI Act is the, the, is the kind of next step is going to be they're trying to move that into a very concrete legislation that then would provide guidelines and rules for this. So in a way, it's, a, it's the kind of environment seems to be ripe through these various influences for now to be the moment that some preliminary and, and legislatively binding legislations will, will emerge as we look at these various debates. And again, we can start sketching out some of the more detailed nuances out of this, but it's interesting now, especially with the Biden legislation or executive order, how these things are being increasingly pushed from governments and, and different actors. So yeah, that's a kind of very broad environment in which many of these various often conflicting and diverse debates have been kind of finding form in the last, last two, three years. So this 111-page executive order is a sweeping announcement that imposes guardrails on many aspects of the new AI models. One of the remarkable things about this executive order is that it really takes seriously the full scale of impacts AI has in society, and that's why it's so broad. So it mandates that companies share internal testing data, and very importantly, that companies must notify the government when they are training new frontier foundation models. That is, models that go beyond 10 to the 26 flops, which is a fancy way of saying things that are of scale GPT-5 and beyond, as well as anything that poses serious national security, economic security, or public health threats. The executive order also goes after the intersection of AI and biology by making federal funding for life sciences dependent on using higher standards around gene synthesis and the kinds of things that can be used to do nasty things with AI and biology. The order also addressed the new development of cutting-edge privacy tools and the mitigation of algorithmic bias and discrimination and the implementation of a pilot National AI Research Resource, or NAIR, which will fund AI research related to issues like healthcare and climate change. And finally, the executive order tries to solve the deficit of AI talent in the U.S. government itself. They are launching an AI talent search on AI.gov. 
I think what's most impressive about this order is just that it reflects the many different areas of society that AI touches, that it's not shying away from the multiple horizons of harm, privacy, bias and discrimination, job automation, AI expertise, biological weapons. Instead of saying these are way too many issues for the government to tackle, this executive order has bullet points for how it's going to try to signal a first step towards each of these areas. So I actually was in the room as the president was signing the executive order. It was a privilege, really, to be there in this historic moment. And I was chatting with one of the White House lawyers, and he used a phrase that I thought was exactly right. He said, this is the end of the beginning. I remember, Tristan, you and I back in March really (laughs) realizing that we were going to have to have something like an executive order. We did the AI dilemma. And while, of course, it's not us pushing for an executive order that made it happen, like we've now sort of completed this process where in March, this was not an issue. The executive order was signed. And so we're going to be discussing that today with Tom Wheeler. Tom Wheeler knows the tech industry from both government and business perspectives. He was a venture capitalist in the cable and telecommunications industry, and he was chairman of the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, from 2013 to 2017. These days, he is a visiting fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, where he's been researching 21st century tech regulation for his new book, Tech Clash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age? Tom. Welcome. Aza, thank you. It's great to be with you guys. Well, and to the storytelling of one of the first times we visited Washington, D.C., trying to meet the various institutions in D.C., Tom, we were actually at a meeting, I think was that at the United Nations, or it was held by Dick Gephardt and some other groups, to try to figure out how are we going to get our hands wrapped around this. And I'm so curious, given your very, very deep expertise in government and uh, in Washington, what is your overall take on the executive order? Well, let me back up, first of all, to... Both of you have been engaged in a missionary effort that has been really important. And I think you ought to feel good about the fact that the President of the United States has stepped up as he did. You know, it's been interesting to watch as Congress talked, the administration moved forward, and they moved forward in a, an evolutionary process, if you will. You know, the first thing out of the box was the AI Bill of Rights, which was kind of aspirational. And then came the, the NIST standards for management and mitigation, which are terrific, but without any enforcement. Then came the voluntary commitments of the major AI model companies that, again, were well-intended, but so general as to almost be unenforceable. And now, what President Biden signed in the executive order, I mean, a 111-page executive order, was, I was struck by his use of the Defense Production Act and its enforceability mandatory nature to require certain things. But the problem with executive action is that most of the other things are guidance and are not enforceable. We need enforceable oversight of the digital activities and that absent action by Congress, we're not going to get there because of the fact that we're still operating under industrial era rules and industrial era statutes and industrial era assumptions. 
So, bottom line on on the executive order, hooray, great leadership throughout this entire process. But we really need an enforceable strategy that only the Congress can create. You know, I often consider AI to be like the mythological Greek monster, Hydra, the multi-headed monster. And, you know, as I looked at the executive order, I think the president took a swing at yeah. every head he could find on the, on the Hydra-headed uh, AI monster, and that's terrific. In terms of just signaling power, and it wasn't lost on any of us that uh, the UK AI summit was happening directly after this announcement. And so there's really, there's a signaling value in saying the US is going to do something, or rather that the US is taking it really seriously. And in the sense that we all have to do what we can do, I viewed this as incredibly good. This was sort of the maximum that Biden or really the executive branch could do. And so before we go into like, how might we fix the limits of our medieval or maybe industrial revolution era institutions, I do think it's important to walk through at least a little bit of what's in this executive order, um, especially around like the use of the Defense Production Act to force government in the loop for frontier models and, and things like that. And then let's step back to this like larger question of sort of structurally how might we redo governance to match the times. Sure. Back to the question of enforceability in the Defense Production Act and the requirement that certain of the companies, and I guess it is yet undefined, but certain of the companies that are building foundation models need to inform the government as to what the training is going on, need to be running some red team activities to try and identify vulnerabilities and share that information because it has national security and economic security implications. Therefore, there can be mandatory requirements. Those are all good, and those are important steps, and we need to understand what's in the black boxes and have an ability to, based on that understanding, deal with whatever reality is created. I think it's, I think it falls short of the Food and Drug Administration, for instance. We will run government tests on every new pharmaceutical and determine whether or not it can be released to the market, but it's a move in that direction. And it's a mandatory requirement that the government is at least aware of what is going on. Now, the interesting thing, and we can get to this later, but the interesting thing is I didn't see in the order specifically who was covered. And one of the fascinating things is, okay, how do we deal with open source yeah, very good models who, that, that is coming definitely from people who we know are not <laughs> covered by this? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. 
Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tawana Petty, welcome to Democracy Now! You are not only warning people about the future, you're talking about the uses of AI right now and how they can be racially discriminatory. Can you explain? Yes. Thank you for having me, Amy. Uh, absolutely. I, I must say that um, the, the contradictions have been heightened with the godfather of AI and others speaking out and authoring these particular letters that are talking about these futuristic uh, potential harms. However, many women uh, have been warning about the existing harms of artificial intelligence many years prior to now. Timnit Gebru, Dr. Joy Bulamwini, um, and so many others, Safia Noble, Ruha Benjamin, and so, and uh, Dr. Alondra Nelson, which, uh, which you just mentioned, the blueprint for uh, an AI Bill of Rights, which is asking for five core principles, safe and effective systems, algorithmic discrimination protections, data privacy, notice and explanation, and human alternatives consideration and fall back. And so at the Algorithmic Justice League, we have been responding to existing harms of algorithmic discrimination that date back many years prior to this almost uh, robust narrative reshaping conversation that has been happening over the last several months with artificial general intelligence. So we're already seeing harms with algorithmic discrimination in medicine. We're seeing uh, the pervasive surveillance uh, that is happening with uh, law enforcement using face detection system to target uh, community members during protests, uh, squashing not only our civil liberties and rights to organize and protest, but also the misidentifications that are happening with regard to false arrests that we've seen. Two very prominent cases started off in Detroit. And so there are many uh, examples of existing harms that it would have been really great to have these voices of mostly my white men who are in the tech industry who did not pay attention to the voices of all those women who were lifting up these issues many years ago. And they're talking about these futuristic possible risks when we have so many risks that are happening today. So, Professor Max Tegmark, if you could respond to what uh, Tawana Petty said uh, and the fact that others have also uh, said that the, the, the risks have been uh, vastly uh, overstated in, in that letter and more uh, uh, importantly, given what, what Tawana has said, that it distracts from already existing effects uh, of artificial intelligence that are widely in use already. I think this is a really important uh, question here. There are people who say that one of these kinds of risks distracts from the other. I strongly support everything oh, we heard here from Tawana. I think these are all very important problems, examples of how we're giving too much control already the machines. But I strongly disagree that we should have to choose about worrying about one kind of risk or the other. That's like saying we should stop working on cancer prevention because it distracts from stroke prevention. These are all incredibly important risks. I've spoken up a lot on social justice uh, risks as well and, and threats. And, you know, it just plays into the hands of the tech lobbyists if, if they can, if it looks like there's infighting between people who are trying to rein in big tech 
for one reason and people are trying to rein in big tech from the for other reasons let's all work together and realize that society just like society can work on both cancer prevention and stroke prevention we have the resources for this we should be able to deal with all the crucial social justice issues and also make sure that we don't go extinct. Uh, extinction is not that something in the very distant future, as we heard from Yasho Bengio, you know, we might be losing total control of our society relatively soon. It could happen in, in the next few years. It could happen this decade. And once we're all extinct, you know, all these other issues cease to even matter. Let's work together, tackle all the issues uh, so that we can actually have a good future for everybody. So, Tawana Petty, and then I want to bring back in Yashua Bengio. Um, Tawana Petty, what needs to happen at the national level, you know, U.S. regulation? And then I want to compare what's happening here, what's happening in Canadian regulation, the EU, European Union, which seems like it's about to put in the first comprehensive set of uh, regulations. Tawana. Right, absolutely. So the blueprint was a, a good model to start with that we're seeing some states adopt and try to roll out their versions of an AI Bill of Rights. The president issued an executive order uh, to strengthen racial equity and support underserved communities across the federal government, which is addressing specifically algorithmic discrimination. You have the National Institute of Standards and Technologies that issued an AI risk management framework that breaks down the various types of biases that we find within algorithmic systems like computational, systemic, statistical, and human cognitive. And there are so many other legislative uh, opportunities that are happening on a federal level. You see the FTC speaking up, uh, the Federal Trade Commission on algorithmic discrimination. You have the Equal Employment Opportunity Corporation that has issued statements. You have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, who has been adamant about the impact that algorithmic systems uh, have on us when data brokers are amassing these mass amounts of data the, that have been extracted from community members. So I agree that there needs to be some uh, collaboration and cooperation. But we see uh, situations like uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru was terminated from Google for warning us before ChatGPT was launched upon the uh, millions of people uh, as a large language model. And so co cooperation has not been lacking on the side of the folks who work in ethics. To the contrary, these companies have terminated their ethics departments and people who have been warning about existing harms. We're having a winter membership drive to close out the year, so if you've been waiting for a special occasion to sign up or buy a membership as a gift, now's the time. We're a small team working on a small budget, and sometimes we get tossed around with the bigger ebbs and flows of the podcasting business, and we can't always depend on steady ad revenue, which is why members have always been the most important part of keeping the show running. So just because we've been around for a long time, don't think that we don't need your support, because we absolutely do. For the holiday season, membership is on discount for 20% off. That goes for gift memberships as well. So grab that while you can and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode, bonus episodes where the team get together and make each other laugh while discussing important issues, and an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestofleft.com support for details. That link is in the show notes, and thanks for your support. 
Now, the European Union has agreed on legislation to govern the use of artificial intelligence. The deal includes limits on facial recognition technology and restrictions on using AI to manipulate human behavior. The EU says the future legal framework for AI will include tough penalties for companies breaking the rules, but will not stifle development of the industry in Europe. It follows years of discussions among member states and lawmakers in the European Parliament. We had one objective, to deliver a legislation that would ensure that the ecosystem of AI in Europe would develop with a human-centric approach respecting fundamental rights and the European values. This is really something that um, uh, is much more, I believe, than a whole book. It's a, a launchpad for the European startups and also researchers to, to lead the global race for what our fellow citizens want, a trustworthy AI. For more on this, let's bring in our correspondent in Brussels, Bernd Rieget. Hello, Bernd. Uh, why did the EU decide that this law was needed? Well, the EU felt it is about high time to regulate and the EU wants to be the first uh, in the world, the first big regional uh, business area to regulate uh, artificial intelligence. Neither the US nor Asian markets have this regulation. And in this way, the EU wants to set the world standards for the um, whole industry. And the EU also felt that it is a high time to do this now because there are some dangers uh, deriving from artificial intelligence. Um, and the EU sees itself as a, as a, at, the, at the forefront of a revolution, actually, in business because AI will have impact on every field of daily life in the future. Mm. The future is quite tricky when you think about AI, isn't it? Walk us through some of the measures that will be put in place and, and what they will mean for people and companies in the EU. The EU will divide uh, AI applications into four risk classes. Some of them will be completely forbidden, like facial recognition in, on, a, on a mass scale. There are some exemptions for military and, and uh, law enforcement, and also uh, behavioral uh, control and the control of your thoughts. That will be also banned. Uh, but uh, high-risk applications, for example, in self-driving cars, uh, will be allowed in the EU, but they have to be certified. Uh, the technique has to be open so that everybody can see how that works. Uh, and normal, I, I would call it like chat GBT on a medium risk level. Uh, that can be uh, in the EU without any restrictions, but it has to be documented how this thing works. And everybody has to know that he is dealing with AI that is not talking to a human. This is one of the essential measures in the whole legislations. You as a consumer shall always decide, do I want to talk to a machine? Uh, I have to know that it's not human. Um, this is the, the basic principle, and, but there are also some uh, AI applications that will be not regulated. For example, audio uh, and video altering um, uh, programs uh, that mm. make these uh, well-known deep fakes. These are not regulated. They don't pose uh, a high risk uh, in the view of the EU. Okay. What has the reaction been so far? I assume quite mixed, right? 
Well, there are positive and negative reactions on both sides of the aisle, if you will. The business lobby is saying this is far too much. It's too far because uh, it's overregulation. It will hamper uh, competition. It will prevent startups from coming up with new solutions. Some companies might even leave Europe to go to the United States or Asia to develop their applications there. On the other hand, uh, consumer protection groups say this is not far enough because the data are not protected very well and there are some mm. uh, AI uh, applications for example in toys that are not regulated that could attack uh, the thoughts and the behavior of our kids. So both sides are not really um, mm. satisfied that shows that they somehow reached a balance. back to early 1990s. That's when the U.S. really stepped back from regulation. Because the Internet has such explosive potential for prosperity, it should be a global free trade zone. Up until then, the U.S. had often been setting the rules that had global impact. But then the U.S. really adopted this market-driven dogma that was very anti-regulation. So the U.S. took the lead in promoting this deregulation agenda. It should be a place where government makes every effort first, as the vice president said, not to stand in the way. And the EU stepped in and filled the vacuum because at that very point, the EU was ramping up its own efforts to integrate the common European market. And that meant it needed to harmonize regulations so that we remove the barriers from within the member states for training within the EU. So the EU started proactively building a regulatory state, not for the purpose of ruling the world, but for the purpose of making Europe an integrated, strong trading area. We will strengthen the impact of this community through the ongoing implementation of common foreign and security policies. So then the EU uh, started focusing its regulatory efforts on digital economy. The European Union has approved rules to force big technology firms such as Google, Facebook and Twitter to remove illegal content. The European Union has hit tech giant Meta with a record-breaking fine of over a billion dollars for defying privacy rules. And the gap between what the EU was producing and what the US was failing to do in the regulatory space just became larger and larger. But initially, it was really the US's decision to say that, look, we trust the markets and the EU making philosophically a very different rule. And I think the inadvertent effect, the, the unintended consequence was that the US basically ceded this whole governance space to the EU. And what has it accomplished? Give, give us some of the greatest hits. Well, I would say the GDPR is by far the most famous hit. The European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, known to friends as GDPR, goes into effect tomorrow. So that was enacted in 2016, and that is a very significant regulation in shaping the entire global data privacy conversation and legislative frameworks. Then also antitrust. So the Europeans are very concerned about the abuse of market power by dominant tech companies. You have to recognize that you have powers beyond anyone else, and with that comes a responsibility. So there have been four antitrust 
lawsuits against Google that have been successfully concluded in the EU and that have resulted in around $10 billion in fines. And then there is the content moderation space. So the Europeans are very concerned about disinformation. They are very concerned about hate speech and the toxic environment surrounding internet users uh, when they are using the platforms. And we need to say to some of these service providers, you have a responsibility for the way you do business to make sure that people feel as comfortable when they are online as well as when they are offline. So the Europeans have moved to limit hate speech and limit disinformation, even though they remain committed to freedom of expression. There is just a sense that that important commitment to free speech is balanced against some other fundamental rights, including a right to dignity. And a hard pivot away from dignity to your phone chargers may be the most tangible of all these Brussels effects. There are USB-A chargers. There are USB-B chargers. There are USB-C chargers. There are micro USB chargers. There are mini USB chargers. There are light. The EU also regulates consumer electronics. So there's an environmental concern surrounding consumer waste. And then another concern, just the, the consumer convenience, if you like. The idea that we do not want the consumers to have to uh, buy different cords for all the different devices and all the different jurisdictions where they are using them. So uh, the EU standardized the common charger, which then led Apple to also switch its own charging port and extend that chains, not just in Europe, but also outside of the EU. The you know the word from Apple basically is like the Europeans made us do it, mm-hmm. but it's time, and we think people aren't going to freak out. Now, in a case like that with the Apple USB C charger situation, where literally everyone around the world who has this device will have their tech now changed because of this EU regulation, why does it make more sense for a tech company like Apple to change this charging port? for the whole world instead of just for the European market. Tell us how the Brussels effect makes sense for a business. So often for these tech companies, it's just a matter of efficiency and a cost calculus. So it is not efficient to run multiple different production lines. There are scale economies in uniform production. So they don't want to be producing different variations for different markets. And same applies for companies like uh, Meta's Facebook. They pride themselves of having one global Facebook. So if you and me are having a conversation and I'm in Europe and you are in the United States, they don't want there to be a different speech rules that apply to the conversation, whereby I would not be seeing a part of the conversation that you are able to see because there are different content moderation rules. That would make it really difficult to have effective cross-border conversations. But I would say, Sean, that the most common uh, reason is just simply it is just too expensive to have many varieties of the same product. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Tom, for people who are not really familiar about this, one of the levers that the executive order uses is federal funding conditions. So basically, in a few different places, the government's saying with this executive order, as a condition, for example, life sciences funding, to get that funding from the government, you have to do these new and improved practices. So for example, one of the things the executive order covers in the Hydra, uh, which I think is a great term, it covers the many horizons of harm, to use our internal phrase here at CHT, that because AI affects you know, bias, discrimination, right. jobs, labor, biological weapons, risks of doom scenarios, sci-fi scenarios, all the way up you know, to the long term, when something affects all those different horizons of harm at the same time, that's the hydra that you're speaking to. And I think just to, again, applaud the people right. who are working extremely hard at this, the White House, Ben Buchanan, Bruce Reed, the, the whole you know, teams that have been working very, very hard on this, and done in record time, I think like you know, six months, uh, unprecedented. It's the most aggressive action that they could have taken. And one of the areas that they cover in that hydra is actually the intersection of AI and biology, and them mandating that there needs to be new and improved uh, genetic synthesis screening so that labs have tighter controls in the Kind of materials that one would use with AI and to do nasty stuff with biology. Can you speak to any of the history of this, the power of this lever? Because obviously, this is only in effect places that are affected by federal funding. But I think you'll have some some background here. There are two principal ways in which the government affects the marketplace. One is through direct regulation, and the other is through its role as typically the largest consumer. And that's what this uh, second part that you've been talking about is doing. And again, it's terribly important. I just have to pause here for a second. I agree with everything you just said about the incredible effort speed and dedication that went into doing this. I don't want to have that as a as somehow being Eeyore and complaining about the, the significance of this effort. But one of the drawbacks, one of the shortcomings of relying simply on government procurement or government funding is that it only goes to those who are procuring yep. or being funded. And again, as you guys have been so terrific in your missionary work in pointing out this is much more expansive than that. So huzzah, yes, use every tool at your disposal, but we also yeah. need new tools. And, you know, I, I think another thing that this executive order does is it lets us see when the tech companies are speaking out of both the left side and the right side of their mouth. It sort of like forces that hand. Because I remember, you know, Tristan and I were at the Schumer AI Insight Forum. And there is, you know, the moment that I think Schumer really wanted when he asked, who here thinks the federal government will need to regulate AI and should regulate? And every single CEO from Sam Altman to Mark Zuckerberg to Satya Nadella from all the major companies raised their hand, right? And it led to um, headlines like tech industry leaders endorse regulating artificial intelligence at, you know, the rare summit in Washington. And then right after the executive order comes out, NetChoice, which is um, funded by a lot of those same organizations, releases their quote, which is, 
Biden's new executive order is a backdoor regulatory scheme for the wider economy, which uses AI concerns as an excuse to expand the president's power over the economy. So here we go, right? They're saying like, yes, please regulate us, just not that one. And they're sort of like, with one hand, they're saying yes, and the other hand, they're saying no. So just, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that thing. <laughs> so as a, as a recovering regulator, this is kind of like the line in Casablanca, you know, where Claude Rains says, there's gambling going on here. Um, <laughs> this is a this is a classic move uh, in these kinds of environments that, yes, I am all for puppies and, and apple pie in the flag. And now let's talk about what the specifics of that means. Oh, golly, we can't go there. This would be terrible. This would be awful. And against innovation and, you know, then all come out all the detailed imaginary horribles. One should not be surprised. You know, one of the things I'm proudest of is my term as chairman of the FCC was net neutrality. I would meet with industry executives or listen to them make their speeches or testify. And we're all for net neutrality, but let's define net neutrality my way, which is it's only about blocking and throttling. This is why the job of policymaking is so damn difficult. You know, I, I'd come home from work when I was chairman and I'd, I'd sit there at the dinner table with my, my wife and I, I would say, you know, the, the public interest is fungible. There is nothing clear cut about this is the public interest. There's this aspect of the public interest and that aspect of the public interest. And the, the job of the policymaker is to sift through all of that and figure out what is the fungible answer to address the public interest. You're sort of saying, in the end, like you have to choose a process that does good like sense and decision-making. It's not going to be something just static in time. And one of the parts of the EO is this personnel as policy thing. There's like a, right now there's a dearth of knowledge, of expertise about AI in the government. And so right. there's a huge hiring spree. There's going to be a sort of head or chief of AI, I think, in now every federal agency. Right. And I think the White House is creating a White House AI Council, which will coordinate all the federal government's AI activities, staff from every major federal agency. So I'm, I'm curious then, you know, in the frame of the end of the beginning, what happens next? Like, is the AI Council the right way to think about it? And of course, back to your fundamental question of like, how do we have governance keep up with the increasing pace of AI? First of all, Bruce Reed, who's a deputy chief of staff at the White House and is going to head the AI Council, is a really good guy who understands these kinds of issues. But his job will be to be the maestro, if you will. I think at the end of the day, what we need is a new federal agency that is focused on the realities that, that digital has brought to a previously industrial economy and society and government, and that there has to be that kind of hands-on authority. At the end of the day, you're going to need somebody with rulemaking authority to come in and say, okay, these are the decisions that we made back to the question of what's in the public interest. Here's how we have put those various forces together. But let me pick up on one other thing that I was thinking as you were saying that. I watched Eric Schmidt on 
<clears throat> meet the press a month, six weeks ago, whatever it was, when they were interviewing him about AI, and he said, oh, well, you know, you got to let the companies make the rules here because there's nobody in government that can understand this. And I, I got infuriated because we used to hear that in the early days of the digital platforms. Oh, you know, these digital platforms are so complex. And, 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 and if you touch it, you'll break the magic kind of a thing. And it seems to be the same kind of playbook, which is, well, let's let the company just go ahead and make the rules because they are the, really the only ones that understand. And, you know, I just kept saying to myself, well, wait a minute. We split the atom. We sent men to and from the moon safely in a government program. And sure, there is not the kind of in-depth knowledge widespread. But you know what? I bet that there are very few members of Congress who can explain jet propulsion or Bernoulli's principle that keeps airplanes in the air. But we sure do regulate the manufacture and operation of aircraft. The real problem is that we lack a convincing plan for AI safety. People are working hard on evals, looking for risky AI behavior, and that's good, but clearly not good enough. They're basically training AI to not say bad things rather than not do bad things. Moreover, evals and debugging are really just necessary, not sufficient conditions for safety. In other words, they can prove the presence of risk, not the absence of risk. So let's up our game, all right? Try to see how we can make provably safe AI that we can control. Guardrails try to physically limit harm. But if your adversary is super intelligent or a human using super intelligence against you, right, trying is just not enough. You need to succeed. Harm needs to be impossible. So we need provably safe systems. Provable, not in the weak sense of, of convincing some judge, but in the strong sense of there being something that's impossible according to the laws of physics. Because no matter how smart an AI is, it can't violate the laws of physics and do what's provably impossible. Steve Omohundro and I wrote a paper about this, and we're optimistic that this vision can really work. So let me tell you a little bit about how. There's a venerable field called formal verification, which proves stuff about code. And I'm optimistic that AI will revolutionize automatic proving business, and also revolutionize program synthesis, the ability to automatically write really good code. So here's how our vision works. You, the human, write a specification that your AI tool must obey, that it's impossible to log into your laptop without the correct password, or that a DNA printer cannot synthesize dangerous viruses. Then a very powerful AI creates both your AI tool and a proof that your tool meets your spec. Machine learning is uniquely good at learning algorithms, but once the algorithm has been learned, you can re-implement it in a different computational architecture that's easier to verify. 
Now, you might worry, how on earth am I going like, to understand this, this powerful AI and the powerful AI tool it built and the proof if they're all too complicated for any human to grasp? Here is the really great news. You don't have to understand any of that stuff because it's much easier to verify a proof than to discover it. So you only have to understand or trust your proof-checking code, which could be just a few hundred lines long. And uh, Steve and I envision that such proof checkers get built into all our compute hardware, so it just becomes impossible to run very unsafe code. What if the AI, though, isn't able to, to write that AI tool for you? Then there's another possibility. You train an AI to first just learn to do what you want, and then you use a different AI to extract out the learned algorithm and knowledge for you, like an AI neuroscientist. This is in the spirit of the field of mechanistic interpretability, which is making really impressive rapid progress. Provably safe systems are clearly not impossible. Let's look at a simple example where we first machine learn an algorithm from data and then distill it out in the form of code that provably meets spec, okay? Let's do it with a, an algorithm that you probably learned in first grade addition, where you loop over the digits from right to left, and sometimes you do a carry. We'll do it in binary, as if you were counting on two fingers instead of ten. And we first train a recurrent neural network, never mind the details, to nail the task. So now you have this algorithm that you don't understand how it works in a black box defined by a, a bunch of tables of numbers that we in nerd speak call parameters. Then we use an AI tool we built to automatically distill out from this the learned algorithm in the form of a Python program. And then we use the formal verification tool known as Daphne to prove that this program correctly adds up any numbers, not just the numbers that were in your training data. So in summary, Provably safe AI, I'm convinced, is possible. But it's going to take time and work. And in the meantime, let's remember that all the AI benefits that most people are excited about actually don't require superintelligence. We can have a long and amazing future with AI. So let's not pause AI. Let's just pause the reckless race to superintelligence. Let's stop obsessively training ever larger models that we don't understand. Let's heed the warning from ancient Greece and not get hubris, like in the story of Icarus. Because artificial intelligence is giving us incredible intellectual wings with which we can do things beyond our wildest dreams if we stop obsessively trying to fly to the sun. We've just heard clips today, starting with InFocus explaining the public policy approach to AI. Your undivided attention broke down Biden's executive order on AI. Democracy Now! looked at the social justice threats from AI. 
DW News looked at the EU's approach to AI. Today Explained explained the Brussels effect. Your Undivided Attention looked at more ways to inform policymakers about proper regulation. And a TED Talk proposed a technical solution to creating safe AI. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the Tom Herman program looking at how big tech is trying to undermine regulation through trade agreements. The big tech sector that wants to use its lobbyists and its money to rig trade agreements to basically handcuff Congress. And In Focus discussed the risk of deep fakes on elections and hurdles to regulation. There is a very growing concern or almost a panic about what's going to happen in the upcoming elections. Now that it's not only video, but you can also fake uh, audio text and at a scale and speed that has not been happening before. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support. During December, we are offering 20% off memberships for yourself or as gifts, so definitely take advantage of that while you can. Or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now to wrap up, I just wanted to reiterate an idea about new technology that I think can't be said enough because it helps to frame the discussion in an important way. The debate so often comes down to tech boosters versus the tech doubters or the naysayers or the ones pointing out that new tech based on old patterns will reinforce old systems of oppression like racism or otherwise rather than remove it and so on. So my concern is that the average person listening to this debate and is not like super well informed will just wonder, well, well, which is it good or bad? Or even the people who are informed will feel the need to come down on one side or the other and proclaim that the new technology in question is either good or bad. But anyone who falls into that trap is going to be making a mistake and potentially blinding themselves to the perspectives of the other side. And that ends up getting us nowhere. The more accurate truth is to understand that new tech often ushers in simultaneous versions of both utopia and dystopia all at once. And I got this framing from Tristan Harris, who we heard from today on uh, Your Undivided Attention. Years ago, he described this idea using ride-hailing apps as the example, you know, the ability to tap a button on your phone and have a car pick you up in a few minutes. And that's like a genuinely amazing thing. It's like sort of a techno-utopia that that's possible now. But he also pointed to how that business model was looking to undermine the hard-fought benefits that cab driver unions had won. And, uh, you know, they were looking to reduce the pay and benefits earned by professional drivers, which is just the latest in the unbroken chain going back all the way through capitalism to attempt to pay labor as little as possible and maximize the profits for owners. And that is certainly not utopia. But it's important to understand both sides and appreciate why tech boosters believe in the benefits they trust the tech will bring. Genuinely good things come from technology all the time, from ride-hailing apps to next-generation vaccines. But similarly, one must understand the current and potential downsides that new tech has brought and will continue to bring. Otherwise, these advocates on both sides will continue to just talk past each other. 
If you want to sing the praises of new technology, your entire framework must include safeguards, and not just against existential Terminator-type threats, but against everyday abuses and structural flaws that create oppression, as we heard about today. But if you are one of those, as I am, cautioning against the potential downsides of new tech, you also have to understand why people are so excited about the potential good that new tech like AI can bring, so that we're not equally dismissive of the upsides as the blind optimists tend to be of the downsides. Now, one of my favorite phrases that I only came across recently is that you can't invent the ship without inventing the shipwreck, which basically encapsulates this whole idea because it highlights the inescapability of downsides without making it sound like you shouldn't pursue the upsides. There are very few people, I would wager, who think that we shouldn't have invented ships because shipwrecks are so bad. But also, it's really, really important to try to prevent wrecks as much as possible and to mitigate the harm they cause as much as possible when they do inevitably happen. As the Onion satirical newspaper wrote about the sinking of the Titanic, world's largest metaphor hits iceberg. Titanic, representation of man's hubris, sinks in North Atlantic, 1,500 dead in symbolic tragedy. So the question is just whether we're going to introduce new tech with the hubris of the builders of the Titanic and not plan for any downside because we don't expect them to happen, or do we move ahead with the modesty and, yes, the regulation that has pushed modern shipbuilders to have to plan for the worst? That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text at 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Lewindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to our Discord community where you can also continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.